0: From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting the show, though, talking about a big event that took place in Vancouver earlier today, and that is the opening of a satellite office in Chinatown in Vancouver.
1: We could thank every single person here for everything they've done to, uh, you know, you know uh, to support Chinatown uh, when, it, when it wasn't pretty when things were going uh, you know sideways really fast there are so many people that did not give up on Chinatown and as a resident of Vancouver not as an elected official but as a resident I want to thank each and every one of you because you made this happen Chinatown would not be here today if it wasn't for your support
0: That was Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim. He was on hand for the unveiling of the satellite office. Also there was Lenny Zhou, a Vancouver City Councillor. And Councillor Zhou joins us now on the line. Thank you so much for taking some time today.
2: Yeah, thank you, Jill. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much.
0: Well, an an exciting day. We've talked in the past about the office opening up. I want to talk more Mm -hmm. uh, about the namesake in a moment. But before we do that, how important is it, do you think, to have a satellite office that is located in Chinatown?
2: Well, I think it's really important. I think uh, during the campaign, we heard a lot lot of people saying that, uh, you know, the, the people living in Chinatown, they want to talk to the people from the city government, but there's no channel because they might have a mobility issue for the senior people, because they might have some language barriers. So they want some office over there in Chinatown, so they can talk to directly. So that office will pla- you know, provide that platform, so they can just come to the office, talk to the people, you know, send their concern or some ideas to the city government directly, and then we're going to listen to them. You know, I personally will be working, working there on a regular basis as well, so that would provide a very good public engagement with the people, with the residents in Chinatown. Uh,
0: do you think it will help, too, with the revitalization? If you're working there on a regular basis and others as well, kind of uh, bringing a bit more vibrance back to mm-hmm. that part?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, solving the issue was so, you know, making Chinatown revitalized, the best way is to just to work there, work in the Chinatown, listen to the people, work with them directly. But not Chang, you know, stay far away in the city hall. Imagine what happened over there. So we always believe solving the issue. We have to be there, listen to the people. That's exactly what this office is about.
0: The office itself is in honor of Juan Alexander Comiao. Uh, that yeah. is the, the namesake. Can you tell us a little bit? It's it's a name that might not be familiar to a lot of people, but mm-hmm. what an incredible story uh, behind that name
2: yeah it's so a very prominent chinese canadian uh canadian pioneer so uh he was born in eighteen sixty one of course that's before the uh Canadian confederation, so making him the first known person of Chinese descent to have been born in what is called Canada and uh he's been you know a, a lifelong uh servant and the committee leaders and he became a court interpreter and a labor contractor. Uh, 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 you know, as a, as a career professional. And he also served as the interpreter for the uh, Vancouver Police Court for over 30 years. And he's also very good at uh, speaking language. I think he can speak uh, four or five different languages, so which is really significant in the community, so he can help a lot of people. And also even more significant, I think some people believe he was the only one, vo- only Chinese uh, Canadian voted before, and after the Chinese Exclusion Act. So this is a really significant uh, person person in the the, the Chinese community.
0: Uh, I understand as well, uh, too, he actually had made it uh, as a finalist to appear on on the $5 bill a few years ago. Uh, Do you think that that this is a good way to honour his legacy and to make sure that more people know uh, the story and know the history?
2: Yeah, I think absolutely, because of, uh, you know, this... uh, uh, his story will bring a lot of uh, uh, diversity and different, uh, 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 you know, bring people together because he's uh, very proud of uh, Canadian, And, uh, you know, uh, also he, his story symbolized the resilience and the perseverance despite facing numerous uh, uh, obstacles and system, systematic discrimination for the Chinese community. And also, you know, remember he was born at a time that Chinese discriminatory policies and attitudes prevailed against Chinese immigrants. So he witnessed the first kind of challenge faced by the Chinese community, including the racism, the exclusion, discrimination legislation, you know, so I think his story is very significant. And uh, you know, yeah, so I really believe it is very significant for the community. Um,
0: what do you think he would think of what, what's been happening in the community? Uh, and especially as we saw during the pandemic with, well, like many communities, uh, there weren't a lot mm-hmm. of people around. Uh, but it seems like Chinatown was continuously uh, more so hit with graffiti. There have been racist acts. So what do you think he, his thoughts would be, given all of the work that he did uh, to, to try and fight those things?
2: Well, I think he would be, you know, at least his family was there today, and they were really excited about, about seeing the uh, the opening of the office. Also, the naming after after Wang Alexander Kong Yang, so it really de- reflects a desire to honor and recognize the contribution of Chinese Canadians to the growth and the cultural richness in this city, in City of Vancouver. It also, you know, acknowledged the significance of Chinatown as a historic and a culture hub. Also demonstrate a commitment, you know, to preserving and uh, celebrating the heritage of Chinese Canadian communities. So I would think, uh, you, you know, he would be really excited to see what happened right now, and uh, also demonstrate our commitment to cultural diversity for this, uh, for this, for this city and for this country. It is very important for everyone.
0: And the obviously uh, the office will serve a purpose, and like you said, you'll be mm-hmm. working there. Others will be working there. I know that services will be offered in different languages for people That's to right. make sure it's inclusive. Uh, how does it fit in? Do you think though with the changes that have come to Chinatown and will likely come in the future, whether it's a development that not everybody agrees with, or or, or different uh, ways of trying to build more housing, and and like every neighborhood, there are there are mm-hmm. significant changes.
2: Yeah, so I think that office will provide that platform, so we can have a direct conversation, direct dialogue with the residents in Chinatown. So as I mentioned before, before there's no such a communication platform, but now we're just right there. If they have any concerns, they can just uh, step into the office, talk to the people there, and talk to probably the counselor there. So that direct communication channel is uh, very, you know, demonstrates a very good community engagement. So I would say that would be a very good successful legacy in the Chinatown and in the city of Vancouver as
0: well. And do you think that this particular office or this kind of office, is it unique to Chinatown? Or could this then be a template maybe for future satellite offices in other neighborhoods?
2: Oh, absolutely. So let's see how that goes. You know, let's use that as a pilot. So if there's any uh, interest, I mean, the uh, support for other neighborhoods, why not? So I'm very open-minded. Let's keep that chat conversation open. So there's always a possibility we can do more engagement in different communities. Absolutely.
0: Uh, when will you start working out of the office?
2: Uh, I don't know yet because we are moving to a summer break. So I haven't <laughs> even taken any vacation for eight, nine months. So I really want to take some time off in August You know when the council obligation is getting slow. So back to in September, for sure, you know, we, we'll see uh, our schedule. I'll be working there on a regular basis. But of course, not council week because some of the, you know, the work we have to do in the council chamber, we can do that over, over there. But for sure, you will see me more often in, the, in that office.
0: Well, Lenny Joe, I appreciate it. I know it was a busy morning with the official uh, unveiling and opening the, the ceremony about the office. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk more about this today. Appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Jill. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for being with us. Well, coming up on the show, we are going to get all of the details about the Honda Celebration of Light. It is returning very, very soon thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people are going to be taking part, taking in the event. So we'll have all of the details on that. They were released a little earlier today. We'll have those coming up. Right now, though, we are going to check in with Dan Levitt, who is the CEO of Kin Village in Towson. Dan, thank you so much for coming back on the show.
1: Hi, Jill. Great to be here.
0: Well, I know we've talked to you so many times and throughout the pandemic and whenever there are are announcements or or, uh, different uh, things happening when it comes to long-term care in the province, uh, I want to talk to you a bit about a fundraiser that you have coming up as well. But before we do that, uh, I'm curious, there was an announcement earlier this week, a couple of days ago, and it was the province announcing that more long-term care beds were coming to Campbell River and getting more care beds into smaller communities Making sure that people have access to those care beds. So, does an announcement like this make a big difference, or how important is it? Do you think that we're focusing on getting those beds up and running and and building more of the long term care home facilities?
1: Well, Jill, um, anytime that we can. Celebrate an investment in anything to do with older people is great news for all of us. I mean, we're all heading that direction. We all have family members or know somebody, a neighbor, who is kind of on that journey to eventually perhaps needing some kind of support. So seeing that investment in communities like, like uh, Cal River, we've seen, we've seen announcements recently in Delta and in Abbotsford. It's really critical that we see um, our society, our government, um, supporting elders especially who need long term care so that's great news and we know that you know wait lists can be a challenge in the time from when you initially uh, begin to understand that you're going to need further support including long term care it takes a while to get in and you don't always get in to the local um neighborhood um long term care so you want to make sure that we want to make sure that we've built enough so this capacity so that you don't have to leave home you shouldn't have to leave Um, the community that you grew up in and that you live in, in order to get long-term care, it should be essentially in your neighbourhood.
0: And are we changing the way that the facilities look, or is there a need for that, do you think, as far as moving away from uh, the more hospital-type setting or more kind of warehouse-type setting to a more home feel?
1: Absolutely. Um, The the idea of um, a hospital-style nursing home, I think, is outdated, And I think we should not be building um, those kinds of institutions where um, seniors are isolated, they live away from the town centre, they should be in the heart of the community where the the seniors live, and they should feel and resemble as much as possible like a house. Um, It should be, you know... This, this the example of the Langley uh, Dementia Village and and other smaller uh, household models where twelve people live together and when they wake up in the morning at, they wake up when they want to wake up and they they can spend the day they want to and they can eat when they want to they can um have live their life the way that they would like to and have fresh outside um, air have access to to getting outdoors having family members visit them and living life to the fullest, um, not being kind of restricted by, if you will, the institutional model that, um, where things are, are, uh, are centralized. We want to see it decentralized and have the staff and the people who live in that neighborhood decide how they live their lives.
0: And what does that do then as far as cost? Because it sounds that like you can make the connection that one of the reasons that, that we have had long-term care or facilities that have been built with that more older, outdated model is because it is a cheaper way of doing things. So have we embraced that, yes, it's going to cost more, but this is very important?
1: I don't think we're there yet, Jill. I think, um, you know, all of us kind of, um, when we get to that point, um, a lot of us think that it's government's responsibility to provide um, this service and, and that um, we, we pay you know, ideally the least amount of money. People in the United States um, who are asset test, tested in Canada and British Columbia, we do income testing you pay based on your income in some jurisdictions like the United States is asset tested and so people they'll, they might try to hide that money or give it away in advance so, so that they're not, you know, to the families um, so that they're not paying the top dollar and I think we need to re, reimagine that and think about what would happen if you went into a care home for example and you paid if, if you will a condo fee, you paid for the space that you're in, um, in some models they call it a life lease and then at some point you know, the, if the average length of stay is 18 months and it's getting shorter, then at the end of that that period of time, um, your heirs, the people who who inherit um, your your assets, they would get um, that money back. So it's only being lent, if you will, temporarily to, to, to the the operator. And then um, it, it helps reduce the, the burden, if you will, on the taxpayers to, to build all these care homes. And where we've seen this happen in places like Australia, uh, there's been a renaissance um, of, of new buildings. And um, if, for example, if Kin Village could do this, if um, we, could, we could build a brand new care home now, and uh, we could build it the way we want to build it and the way the community wants to see it done, which I think resembles um, the neighborhood and resembles where people right now call home.
0: Right, and it makes a, makes a lot of sense. Uh, you mentioned as well that people like to stay home for as long as they can and stay in their communities as much as possible. Uh, we have another uh, heat wave. There are heat warnings in many parts of the province uh, right now. We've certainly seen high temperatures. Uh, how, how, um, how much of a challenge is that when we're talking about people who are seniors and might be living in conditions where they don't have a lot of access to air conditioning or, or ways to cool down?
1: Well, I think the first thing that you know, the listeners can do right now is think about um, seniors or other people who are vulnerable, who don't have the ability to, to leave um, their home. They're not as mobile, and they're perhaps living in a place that doesn't have air conditioning. I think we can all, um, as um, Canadians, reach out to um, our fellow neighbours and, and uh, see how they're doing and check in on them and do whatever we can so that they're safe um, Um, The tragedy that happened a few years ago, um, it was very unfortunate that those were people who were more isolated, didn't have access to getting help. So it's really critical there and uh, it, I know it's been the news lately around um, apartment buildings or um, rentals um, not the the owners not being in, um, willing to invest in um, new electrical systems that support air conditioning. I think everyone has the right to an air conditioner and we should be making sure people um, have um, cooling opportunities and you know, that includes access to the outdoors if you can get outside and uh, you'll be underneath in some shade or get access to um, a of cooling off. It's so critical because um, you know, as you get older, your body doesn't react um, to um, temperature adjustments um, as easy. And those kinds of heats, especially at night, can have um, really negative impacts on older people.
0: All right, that is uh, good advice uh, as we are continuing uh, to deal with these temperatures, at least for the next few days. Uh, on a much lighter note, Dan, I know you have a big event that's coming up in uh, September, which isn't that far away. And this is really celebrating uh, people as they uh, get into their 70s. Tell us a little bit more about that.
1: So we're, we're really excited, um, Jill, to um We've seen um, those events, um, 30 under 30 or 40 under 40. Uh, we're doing something a little differently. We're, we're recognizing seven people, seven extraordinary people who are over the age of 70. And these are people who have made a huge difference throughout their lives, but Over 70, they have done remarkable contributions. So um, in the areas, they have health and recreation, arts, culture, science, business, volunteerism, environment. And they've overcome adversity, and they made a huge difference in their community. So we're taking um, September 16th, an evening, and we're going to recognize their outstanding achievements. And all these individuals are inspiring to so many people
0: it's great I and mean, when you mention that too you're right you do often see the the 30 under 30 40 under 40 but this does seem like an age group that maybe doesn't get nearly as much or as much attention as they should
1: yeah exactly and you know, people you know sometimes um you know, some of us, um, you know, we have gray hair. We don't want to always, and we have wrinkles. We don't want to always share that. We don't want to always tell people what our age is. But I think, you know, these are seven people who are owning their age. They're proud of who they are. And uh, these people, they're flaunting it. And, and uh, we want to celebrate um, aging. We think aging's is a, um, a good thing. And uh, so we're, we're recognizing that. And uh, the community's going to come support us. Um, we're, we're raising money that night for... Um, our expanded day program for older adults. Uh, these, when we talk about the number of um, care homes that are being built, we're not building enough in British Columbia, unfortunately. Yet, I believe we will in the future. But, but there's long wait lists, and there's even challenges getting services in your own community. So, what we're doing is we're we're creating uh, tw- uh, 25 spaces altogether, which is doubling our current capacity, so that people who live in Towsen and South Delta have have a place, um, a temporary place as as uh, their condition advances. So it's kind of that intermediary place between living at home. They can stay in their community before if they might need long-term care one day.
0: Is there a website, or or how can people learn more about it?
1: So they can go to our website, um, which is kinvillage.org, uh, forward slash 7over70, seven and uh, they can go online l- learn more about the event. We have an early bird ticket price of $175 available to uh, mid-August, and we're expecting to sell out this event, and it's going to be a great way of honouring seven remarkable people.
0: Well, Dan, it's always great to, to chat with you. So thanks so much for doing this, and great to have you back on the show. Thanks, Jill. it is another warm and uh, mainly sunny day and that means uh, that once again while well, continues this has been going on for a few weeks now British Columbians especially those well in the province we're talking about Metro Vancouver have been asked to conserve water and this is what the Minister for Emergency Management and Climate Readiness said just a couple of weeks ago. We all have a part to play in building a more resilient
3: province and at this time, I am urging people across the province to conserve, conserve water. Consider taking shorter showers. Only do full loads of dishes and laundry. Water your lawn sparingly. We are in this together. Do your part. Look out for one another.
0: That was Minister Bowen Ma again speaking a couple of weeks ago. Well, Metro Vancouver has just released some new numbers, and these have to do with high water consumption and with the need for water conservation. Joining us now is Malcolm Brody, the chair of the Water Committee at Metro Vancouver. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, good afternoon, Joe. The numbers show that uh, clearly there is still a lot of water being used. The one that stuck out to me was peak day demand at 1.56 billion litres of water. This was on Wednesday, July 5th, which wasn't a designated lawn watering day. Is that concerning to you?
4: Well, the good news is we have a beautiful summer. The bad news is that we've got to watch our water supply and make sure that we're conserving it properly. Uh, I can say that Metro Vancouver water people are watching this every hour of every day, to watch water levels and to watch the water system to make sure that we're going to have enough uh, to get us through into the wetter months of the fall. So yes, when we see higher water usage numbers this year than we have in the past, uh, this is of concern, but but I do emphasize, while it is of concern and certainly taking a lot of concentrated effort, um, The situation in the Lower Mainland is not like the hotter areas in the northern parts of the province. Uh, We have a situation to watch, but a situation that uh, is well under control. Uh, So we just just have to watch it all the time, and, and we'll get through this.
0: Uh, I understand as well that uh, we're being told, that, as we heard from the minister, to conserve water, to to not water lawns if you don't have to, and uh, other ways of conserving water. Uh, but I suppose the, the positive news is that also the reservoir levels are still uh, categorized, classified as, as within the normal range for this time of year.
4: They are indeed. So I would say it's an average amount of water that we have. Uh, In the Metro Vancouver area, all the cities uh, have taken the lead from Metro Vancouver. They've imposed the water restrictions. We have what's called stage one right now, which means that you can water your lawn on a set day. uh, And that can vary, but it's on a set day once per week. Until last year, stage one would allow twice a week, but now we allow once per week. And we're watching it very carefully. The lawn watering is probably the biggest consumer of the uh, residential water that we have.
0: And is it different, um, say, if you have a small yard area, or is it a different rule that if you're setting up a sprinkler, system on your yard as opposed to say hand watering a patio with pots or a smaller area of grass
4: there's different rules for the uh, different areas so the lawn watering is one morning per week Uh, the uh, shrubs and bushes that sort of thing uh, you can water it uh, you can water it in the morning or sometimes throughout other parts of the day, you're, you you should check on your location to see what exactly is allowed. And the edible plants are exempted from the regulations for the obvious reason that they need water all the time in order to produce the food. Right.
0: Uh, so who enforces this? It's a city matter.
4: So each uh, Metro Vancouver rec- recommends the bylaw and it goes to the very cities. The cities. All of them are good in adopting uh, those regulations as their local bylaws. And then it's going to be the local bylaw people uh, for enforcement.
0: And when we look at uh, things that, that take a lot of water, and I know when uh, we talked about this for the first time when the minister made that plea, uh, we know that the, the bulk of the increased water use at this time of year is outdoor water use. Uh, is there a, a possibility or, or have we in the past ever done things like banned washing vehicles or, or filling swimming pools?
4: That can come in a later stage. And the answer is yes, we have gotten to a later stage i remember probably five years ago uh we had to adopt that it's unusual we don't think that that's going to happen this year but yes we can get to that stage
0: and so that would be if if we continue getting this dry whether not a lot of precipitation and and the water usage continues to to even be at the level it is now or or more
4: i would say more so, yes, if it increases and we continue to have this dry weather, then further steps may have to be taken. It just all depends. Remember that the water in the reservoirs comes, uh, first of all, from the sky, and it also comes down from the mountains with the melting of the snowpack. So this year we had uh, warm weather in the spring. You had an early snow melt, and so the reservoirs were filled to overfull uh, you know by mid may or something like that
0: right so um I- Getting the message out to people as well. I know there's been a lot of talk on uh, the recommendation for people to take shorter showers. Uh, there was a guest on this program who said if you can get it down to two minutes, that would be a good thing. Really. Uh, many people said that's not possible. Uh, is it? Does that make a difference though? When we talk about so much of the water usage being outdoors, does it make a difference if people are taking shorter showers and and making making a plan to not run the dishwasher as much?
4: Any little bit helps because it's not just the individual homeowner that is involved in that. If we can make a difference, we've got two and a half million people here in the region, and if if we can conserve water a couple million times, it really can add up and it can make a difference. You know, you, you think, well, what difference is one person going to make? Well, the fact is, if you do it a couple million times, it really does make a difference. And so the effort is well worthwhile. I'm with you on this two-minute shower. I think that might be a little bit optimistic, but uh, you don't want to have a half-hour shower either.
0: Let's find some uh- comfortable uh, time in the middle somewhere?
4: Probably closer to two minutes than a half hour, but (laughs) yes. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right. All right. So it's a, that's a goal, I think, for uh, a, a lot of people. Uh, one of the numbers, though, and I, and I mentioned the peak day that was released, uh, the Metro Vancouver saying July 5th, uh, also saying that uh, the short-term weather forecast is showing uh, that continuing trend of warm, dry weather, but water consumption <laughs> across the region uh, continues to be over 20% higher than the same period last year. Uh, does that mean that people maybe aren't getting the message?
4: well to this point it's probably been simply a matter of the message not having been given out often enough and just people using what they feel they need to use but i think that the the message has definitely gone out now it's been a recurring message for the last number of two two or three weeks i think people are getting the idea uh, i'm no authority on on enforcement of the sprinkling bylaw but just in driving around looking around i think that there's a higher level of compliance than there ever was before people are getting that message that if you only sprinkle that one time per week on your lawn you will end up with a brown lawn but in the fall it will come right back to the green and it'll be fine it will not kill the grass
0: Right. But you, you must also notice, and and I've heard anecdotally people talking about this as well, that you can also drive around neighbourhoods and it's pretty easy to see which neighbours maybe are watering more than once a week because their lawns are still lush and green and look perfect. So, so not everybody will be adhering to these rules. Is that where the enforcement you think should come in?
4: Yes. Yeah, you're, you're right. There will always be people who either through defiance or ignorance, just don't follow those rules and need the kind of reminder. Uh, and, and you can see it when you look at the green lawns. Uh, but still, I think that there's a high level of compliance. People appreciate uh, the advantages that we have and want to make sure that we conserve water so that we don't have a bigger problem down the line.
0: So if everybody kind of does their part, as they've been asked to do uh, when it comes to conserving water, uh, even with more warm temperatures, not a lot of precipitation, is it possible then to keep the restrictions where they are now and then not have to escalate them?
4: Um, It's my guess that we will be okay with stage one because stage one is more dramatic and drastic than it used to be used to. We used to allow twice a week lawn watering in stage one now we only allow once a week and i think that that you know if if we just monitor the situation and we're very careful about it and people are cooperate with their uh reduction of water use i think we're going to be okay but it's just a guess
0: all right malcolm brody thank you so much for joining us for talking more about this today appreciate your time anytime jill
4: anytime thank you
0: Well, fed up with the sound of pickleball, a Chilliwack couple says they are going to start a hunger strike and they are going to stage that hunger strike until the courts at the Kinsman Park on Portage Avenue in Chilliwack are decommissioned. Joining me now to talk more about this is Rajneesh Dewan, a professor at the University of the Fraser Valley and also uh, one of the the two planning to put on that hunger strike. Rajneesh, thank you. Thank you so much for taking some time for talking with us today.
5: Thank you for having me, Leila. Thank you.
0: Uh, how bad is the noise from the pickleball court?
5: Uh, well, it's like uh, you're living next to a shooting range, and you are subjected to gunfire every day, 11 hours a day, consistently. It's torturous. It's, uh, and these courts are barely 10 meters from my house. Uh, whereas the expected norms followed everywhere in B.C. and North America are that the court should be about 100 meters from your house. So uh, let me tell uh, the audience that we are not against the sport of pickleball, and nor are we against the use of this space for recreational purposes. This wasn't supposed to be there, but now that it is there, it's causing all that problem.
0: So take me back to when uh, you first moved to this neighbourhood, because I know you moved to this neighbourhood before pickleball courts, uh, were, uh, were to, the pickleball games were taking place, uh, as you said, quite close to where your house is. So you moved to this neighbourhood uh, knowing that there was a park and there would be all of the noises, I imagine, that come with living next to a park?
5: Absolutely. It was a choice we made consciously and we wanted to live close to a park and we were happy. Very happy living close to a park. Uh, The noises, the tennis people play tennis there. There are some basketball players. There are some, uh, you know, moms with young children playing around. These are very good noises to to listen to. Uh, This space on which the pickleball courts have been made uh, was a green space when we moved in. And then there was a plan in 2017-18 to put in basketball and field hockey over there uh, for which the neighbors were consulted. Somehow, after in 2018, there was uh, a bit of a hush-hush affair in which uh, one gentleman was allowed, was invited to make a presentation for pickleball, and the whole plan was changed. And instead of the multi-purpose sports facility that was supposed to be there for young people, pickleball courts were installed. No uh, noise-related uh, studies were done. Neither was anything available in the public domain ever considered. And this is from the city's own admission in response to my Freedom of Information request. So they put the pickleball courts 10 metres away from our house.
0: And I know there have been disputes like this in other municipalities and other cities, and oftentimes there are also fights where existing tennis courts have been turned into pickleball courts. So was there a tennis court there, or this was a scenario where a pickleball court came in where there was no court?
5: there was nothing as when we when we bought the house it was just a green space there was nothing and there the plan was to make a basketball and field hockey uh, because there is tennis for some uh, you know people for 30 plus ages and then there there is a play area for young uh, toddlers and you know young children but there was nothing for youth so there was a plan to put something in there for youth but then that was taken away from them and given to pickleball
0: and You mentioned a freedom of information request, and I know you've approached the city and told the city about your concerns. What's happened when you've told the city, look, this pickleball court is 10 meters from my house. It's too loud. It shouldn't be here.
5: Well, the city <laughs> has been consistently telling me that they will do something about it, but they don't do anything concrete about it. Whatever they do is just uh, cosmetic changes. This doesn't make any difference. Like uh, for instead of 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., they limited the hours from 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. But nobody follows them. People play after 8, 8 p.m. as well. But that doesn't change anything. We are still subjected to this high decibel, extremely dangerous noise. It's scientifically proven. I have given city a lot of studies that are available in the public domain, which say that exposure, close ex- exposure to the sound of pickleball uh, ball hitting the paddle consistent exposure can cause physical and mental health issues, which me and my wife have been suffering from for the last six or eight months right now. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but the city doesn't care. They just say, oh, we are working, we are working. I have an, I have an email from the mayor in January saying that they have put in budget, uh, money in the budget to make alternative wall facility at Townsend Park and that they will decommission it, but uh, that was in January. Nothing has been done, as a matter of fact, since then.
0: Hmm. I, I saw in uh, an article in the, the local paper, the Surrey uh, now leader, uh, there was a quote from the Chilliwack Pickleball Club president saying that the president, the club itself, had actually asked members not to use the court. Uh, and kind of like what you were saying, even with the, the city guidelines of the different timing, uh, that people are just ignoring it and they're playing anyway.
5: Our oh, Chilliwack Pickleball Club members, there are many of them who are very nice people who have stopped coming. But there are about 30 or 40 who consistently come here now? My question is very simple. On their website, they claim that they have the largest indoor fit pickleball facility in BC. There are many other places in in the in the town where pickleball can be played or is played. Why is the insistence upon using these particular codes? It's not that they don't have other options. It's as if it's being done just to just to annoy us, just spite, just out of spite. I don't understand when you know. Your recreation is causing such harm to people. Where is your conscience? How can you do this to other people?
0: You mentioned the noise as well, and and just before you came on, before the news break, I, I played a story. It was out of the U.S., but it was along the lines of what you were talking about. And it was they had studied the sound of pickleball, comparing it to the sound of tennis, and why that particular sound is so much more jarring. And like you said, can have negative impacts if somebody is exposed to it over long periods of time. I'm curious, do you have neighbors as well that are in the same type scenario, or is it just that the closeness to your house.
5: My house is uniquely placed in that way, but I have received emails from the neighbors, but some of them are scared to actually openly come out. But I have emails of support from neighbors. If need be, I can show it to people. Uh, But uh, on Sunday, we'll see. There will be other people coming out in support of a hunger strike. But uh, one one, one thing I want to say here is that why is Chalabag being so stubborn? Other cities in B.C. have done the same thing. Like, they made mistakes, okay? It, they didn't know that this was a problem. And when they came to realize that this is a problem, they rectified their error. This is the Canadian way of doing things. We, if we make a mistake, we say sorry, and then we rectify that error. Saanich did it, Port Moody did it, Victoria did it, Port Coquitlam did it, Mission did it, Vancouver did it. But when it comes to Chilliwack, it's like, yeah, we know that we are wrong, but we're not going to do anything about it. That is the problem. And when the similar situation happened in another community within Chalewaq municipality in Yarrow, and there too only one person complained, and they took immediate action. They're being discriminatory towards me.
0: Uh, you mentioned that uh, there will be other people with you on Sunday. Uh, why hunger strike? Why have you and uh, your wife chosen that uh, the hung- a hunger strike will be how you protest this?
5: Well, this is uh, what Mahatma Gandhi taught us. We are from India, and uh, it's a Gandhian way of non nonviolent protest to uh, to to impress upon people that uh, we are on the side of the truth. I am simply asking Siri to answer the question that I'm asking them. They they just don't ask, answer the question. They just dilly dally and give me all these, you know, uh, legally w- w- worded uh, documents which I can very well decipher, but they don't answer the specific questions. That why are the pickleball courts less than 10 meters from my house, whereas the recommendations say they should be at least 100 meters. Even with sound mitigation efforts, they should be about 65 to 70 meters. Why don't they do it? Why weren't we consulted? Why wasn't I consulted and the other person in Yarrow was consulted before putting the pickleball courts? If other cities can do it, if a court in Niagara can rule, it's a similar situation. They rule in favor of the complainant and close the courts. Why is the city being blind to all these things? Why, why, is, uh, why, is the, why are these three courts so important for everybody? I don't understand it. Mm-hmm. There are so many other avenues. Let the young people use it. Put some basketball there. Uh, pickleball is an expensive sport. One basketball can, you know, give uh, <laughs> plenty of recreation to like 20 young people.
0: Right, and you'd be okay then with a basketball court 10 meters from your house?
5: I'll be okay with, them because I this I'm not against sport I'm not against noises it's this one noise which there is evidence that it causes issues and I have felt that evidence I have I have come back after three and a half months away from the country I was forced to leave forced to cancel my courses in summer because I couldn't reach. the noise pervades all rooms of my house even with windows closed it's summer I can't even open my windows. Yeah. So that's a, that's the problem.
0: Do you think that, that, and and I'm glad that you're speaking about this today and, and raising these concerns, because I think there might have been when the word got out that you were staging a hunger strike as as a follower of Mahatma Gandhi, that perhaps pickleball noise isn't quite as important as what Mahatma Gandhi uh, had hunger strikes for. But I, I think what you're saying, it kind of opens people's eyes to, to some of the concerns. It's not just the noise is an annoyance. It's a health concern
5: is absolutely a health concern i am 52 years old i have never had to consult or go for any sort of uh, mental health condition ever in my life i have never had a sleeping pill before this thing happened in all my life i've uh, in february i developed a heart flutter and arrhythmia i had to consult a doctor for that and it was after that that i cancelled my summer courses and went and left the country and i was going to stay there for the for another couple of months but when my wife was all started feeling the same impacts, and I couldn't leave her alone here, so I came back last night and then we decided that uh, uh, it's desperate times. It's either we, uh, we, we we find a solution to it. My challenge is simple. Let the city come and say that I'm wrong or accept that they are wrong. I'm giving them evidence. You give me counter evidence. There's nothing, they simply, it's, it's all for the, for the mayor, it's just a numbers game. That there's one or two people against uh, three or four hundred people who, who uh, are the pickleball club members. I'm going with the numbers. He doesn't care about the truth, he cares about the numbers.
0: Where are you going to be staging the hunger strike?
5: At the pickleball
0: courts. At the court. And will you have water or anything like that, or how only, will that work?
5: I will only have water.
0: And, and your wife as well?
5: I'm trying to convince her not to, because her health is more fragile. Mm. So, uh, But she's insisting, but uh, we'll see what happens on Sunday.
0: All right. Well, thank you, uh, Ra- Rajneesh, for joining us and uh, for uh, talking more about this. Uh, I would love to, to touch base with you again uh, once uh, the hunger strike gets underway. And like you said, uh, there, there will very likely be others out there supporting you as well. But thank you so much for taking the time and talking today.
5: Thank you. Thank you so much, Leila. Thanks for having
0: me. Well, whether it is barbecuing in your backyard or maybe you are packing up a cooler full of food and heading on down to stake your spot to take in the celebration of light... Every time around this year, it's good to take a look at those uh, concerns, those foodborne illnesses that could put a bit of a damper on your summer days and evenings, anything that involves eating on the go. Joining us now to talk a little bit more about food safety is Dr. Yun Wang, a food safety researcher, also a professor in the Faculty of Land and Food Systems at UBC. Thank you so much for being with us.
3: Thank you for having me here.
0: Is it something that we should pay more attention to in that with more uh, food being carried, maybe taken to different outdoor locations, there is more of a chance of food poisoning?
3: Indeed, and this is especially something that we need to pay attention during the summertime because when we are eating indoors, we can store the food in the refrigerator, we can heat foods when necessary, and we can wash our hands frequently. Um, but these Uh, facilities are actually not available always outdoors and therefore we need to be more careful we need to make sure that our foods are stored in a cooler that's properly chilled with ice and we shouldn't leave food food outside for too long and if there's no um, running water available it's always um, good to carry a bottle of sanitizer with us so that we can make sure our hands are clean
0: what is the the danger zone when it comes to if we're packing food, like you mentioned, if you have it in a cooler or you're taking food maybe to the beach or to a park, what is the, the danger zone where food could start to go bad?
3: Yeah, so um, the microbial pathogens that actually make us uh, sick when we eat the wrong food, they love a uh, warm, we- um, warm weather, and that's why we're seeing there's a bigger risk during the summertime. So when we are talking about danger zone, it's actually between four and the sixty degrees Celsius, and the, this is the zone that the pathogens will thrive. So in another word, if we keep our cold foods, a uh, cold like below four degrees Celsius and keep our hot foods hot, that's above 60 degrees Celsius. And that's how how we can actually make sure our foods are safe.
0: And when the pathogens thrive in those scenarios, like you said, when the, the temperatures are, are in, in that zone where pathogens are able to, to actually grow and reprodu- reproduce, does the food become spoiled in that people you can tell that it's gone bad? Or is that where there's more of a risk? You might be eating food that could make you sick, but it doesn't seem like it's off.
3: That's a great question. Actually, it's important to keep in mind that um, we cannot tell whether foods are safe by looking or smelling or tasting them. So in another word, spoiled foods are not always contaminated with pathogens. If only that foods that are unsafe um, will taste bad, because then people will be able to know and toss them. But that's not the case. So um, unsafe foods that are contaminated by microbial pathogens can look and taste um, totally normal. And that's why we need to be more careful with that.
0: All right. And uh, you mentioned, so, so always having that sanitizer, if you're in a scenario maybe where you don't have running water, that that gives you uh, another layer of protection as well. Uh, what about people who maybe you're not traveling with food, but you've got a backyard barbecue or you're spending a lot of time barbecuing? What do people need to know about doing that in a safe way?
3: Oh, sure. There are many things to talk about, but I will be focusing on marinating a meat. Um, so um, many people love doing that on the counter because it's more convenient, but that's also the environment that microbial pathogens will grow very quickly. So it's um, always important to marinate um, our meats in the fridge. Another thing to consider is uh, sometimes we use the leftover marinade um, to um, base our cooked meats. But Um, If the marinade has already been used on raw meat, uh, please don't use it to baste the meat that's cooked because um, that can potentially introduce whatever is on the raw meat to the cooked meat and therefore uh, lead to uh, food safety issues. Hmm.
0: And uh, so you mentioned that too. So even if it takes a bit longer, uh, it's uh, safer then to do that in the fridge as far as marinating, even if you're thinking, oh, well, I'm just leaving it on on the counter for an hour or two, that'll be fine?
3: Yeah, um, I mean, it's totally reasonable when we think like that. But um, from the practical perspective, well, we might just hope to leave it on the counter for a very brief while. But um, these needs can end up actually be left on the counter for much longer because um, people are busy. Another aspect is um, some of these foodborne pathogens, they can actually grow very quickly, just within a few hours when um, the temperature is ideal to them, being the room temperature or above, like in summer when we have 30 degrees plus, that's the temperature that they really love to growing.
0: All right, that is good to keep in mind for sure. You mentioned meat, and especially if you're preparing meat or dealing with raw meat and barbecuing, what about Mm -hmm. shellfish and seafood? Because those are also very popular types of foods for a lot of people, whether it's hot or cold in the summer.
3: Oh, sure. Yes. And shellfish is very popular um, food, um, especially to us in BC. So, um, there are several considerations. And the first is, um, when you're buying seafood, it's always important to buy them from credible sources because you might find that there are certain parts, uh, in the ocean that are um, prohibited. And for harvesting um, seafood, and the reason for that is these um, areas can be contaminated, and therefore the shellfish uh, can be contaminated by um, toxins that can actually be very harmful to, to people who are eating these shellfish, so all from credible sources. Another consideration is there's a uh, foodborne pathogen called norovirus, and um, it's pretty common to find it on shellfish. There are having outbreaks of uh, norovirus-contaminated shellfish in BC in the past. So, uh, in a word, when we're eating shellfish, um, it's ideal that they're cooked thoroughly before consumption. Of course, some of us might actually prefer um, raw shellfish, and therefore when we're eating them, then we should really understand what are the risks associated with doing such
0: Right. So if you're something like uh, raw oysters or something exactly. like that, and again, you can't tell if it's got norovirus or the, or if it could, right? Uh, exactly. You
3: cannot tell that.
0: Is it, is it more of a, a problem or do we see more of this in the summer months as well when we're dealing with shellfish because the water temperatures are warmer as well?
3: Well, so it's actually a a great question again, and um, but it's com- more complicated than that. Um because uh, what we have found actually the pattern for norovirus contamination contamination doesn't necessarily always um takes place in the summer. Actually during the fall or even like a quarter um, times in the winter, they can be a big issue too. But to shellfish, um, the outbreak that I just mentioned um, taking place in BC, what um, took place actually at an oyster um, festival in Tofino. So a bunch of people ate um, oysters at that festival and eventually got sick. So again, it's uh, important to pay attention to that aspect, especially now that we have a lot of activities and events going on in the summer, um, because um, if um, these foods are not handled properly by the vendors. Potentially, um, it can impact a larger group of people.
0: And one other summer staple for a lot of people is ice cream. What are the concerns? Because I understand there can be potentially a concern about listeria when we're talking about ice cream.
3: Yeah, for sure. Actually, people um, um, normally assume that frozen treats are safe. Um, there are having actually a couple of really high-profile outbreaks um, taking place in the United States. Last year, there was uh, one um, taking place at a, like, basically uh, ice cream produced by a facility in Florida. So far, we are not aware of any ice cream being produced in Canada that has been involved in such issues. So um, coming down to questions, so in general, ice cream stores in freezers, in grocery stores, um, these are actually safe um, for consume in Canada because we haven't seen any outbreaks or issues so far. We do have to be aware that, yeah, these frozen trees can cause um, big out- outbreaks um, outside of Canada so far. So it has been an issue. Another um, option for ice cream is actually um, soft serve ice cream um, served in stores. And um, potentially, if the dispensing machine um, that's actually used to serve the ice cream is not properly sanitized, mm-hmm. then the same pathogen that you have mentioned, the serum misogynist can actually contaminate the ice cream um, through the dispensing machine. So um, it's important to note that uh, the serum actually rarely makes healthy people sick, but they can affect Vulnerable populations such as very young children, older adults, and the pregnant women. So again, when it comes to eating foods, we have to be aware that not everyone is equal in terms of in terms of uh, foodborne pathogens. Some people are more vulnerable, so um, we have to understand these risks.
0: It is a good reminder, especially at this time of year, as we're continuing to see a lot of sunny weather, and there are so many outdoor events where people will be taking food. Uh, Dr. Siyun Wang, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me.